Hello, and welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Georgia. And I'm Anna. And today we have with us Althea. Yay! The purpose of this podcast is for humanities researchers to get together to talk about our research in a way that's lighthearted and fun and sort of address the fact that it's not all doom and gloom in uh, in humanities research. So Althea has very kindly agreed to be our first guest. Althea, could I ask you to uh, first sort of introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so my name is Althea Cubo. So I'm from the United States. I've lived in Virginia for five years, but before that I've lived in several of the United States, I think probably 10 states, and I lived in Australia three times over a period of three years. So I'm here in Manchester now, and I love Manchester. Oh, well, I'm really glad to, uh, to hear you, that you're enjoying it here and having uh, lived in so many places. I'm very uh, glad to hear that it's uh, been a positive experience for you to move here. So uh, what was it that motivated you to move to Manchester? So by the time I realized that I wanted to do a PhD, I was already well into my master's degree. And in the United States, all the PhD programs are five years. And that was two years for a master and three years for a PhD. And they wouldn't let you separate it out. So in essence, I would have had to repeat my master's if I stayed in the United States. So my subject is museology or museum studies. And there are six um, PhD programs for this in the world. One is in Slovenia. that wasn't going to work out. Um, I do not even know what language they spoke over there. One was in India, and I said to myself, Althea, you're not smart enough to beat seven billion geniuses. Not seven billion, um, (laughs) one billion. Anyway, like I said, I'm not smart enough. So anyway. (laughs) There was one in Arkansas. um, That's in the United States, not a place I wanted to go. So the remaining three were in England. So that's how I came here. What are the other two? Uh, The other two? University of Leicester and University of Newcastle. Oh, you definitely made the right choice. Thanks. Newcastle is lovely. <laughs> Thank you very much. Manchester is, is a lot bigger, which um, there, are, there are nice aspects to it. There are also daunting aspects to it. Yeah, what have, your be- what have been your impressions of Manchester since you moved here? Um, when she's talking about daunting aspects, the biggest one would be not having a car and having to walk places at night. And you can't avoid that when it gets pitch black at four o'clock. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's just been, I, I feel better about doing it now, but when I first came here, I was like following my group wherever they went. And then I'd be like, who's going back to the university? And they'd be like, no one. And I'd be like, oh, do I call an Uber? Or do I see if I can walk three blocks to the bus station without getting kidnapped? But <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, it is very, very scary to moving back into kind of a really ba- a big city because um, I spent the last five years in Durham and now walking back home and you're just like, oh my goodness, there are humans out <laughs> after 10. <laughs> that is ridiculous. <laughs> and none of them are wearing a gown. <laughs> oh yeah, I haven't really lived anywhere very uh, gown, gown-based. Uh, so I, I wouldn't be expecting to see wizards everywhere, I suppose. Um, so Althea, you mentioned that your subject of study is one that isn't very widely represented. Could you tell us a little bit about your field? Right, so museology is an emerging discipline and basically what it is, it's a catch-all label for people who come from any discipline, science, social sciences, art, art history, history, who want to 
do research in their discipline that focuses on museums. That's really interesting. Um, I, so my uh, my discipline is history, so I'm sort of in a, a very different position in terms of, you know, history is pretty much the opposite of an emerging discipline. Uh, so I find it always really exciting to speak to someone who is uh, operating within a sort of a new discipline, a discipline where the rules are sort of still being written. Are there things that are good about that or is it mainly sort of... Uh, frustrating to not have a lot of good material to draw on. Well, it's very exciting because you can see, like, I can see myself positioned as this is actually really starting to catch on as a discipline. And so I see that I could have a very influential career in my discipline because I'm coming on so early. And it's really exciting to think that I can help invent the field. On the other hand, the research that exists, some of it's good, some of it's really good but then you still have people building theory on their personal experiences or um, something weird like that. Like, I went to the museum and I felt this and I read these three philosophers so I know what's happening. And by the way, this is based on Freud. And you're like, (laughs) have you realized that Freud is like not used by anybody except you anymore? Like, (laughs) So you've mentioned a little bit about your your project. So would you mind explaining a bit more? So my research focuses on the way museums are communicating difficult heritage to their audiences. So when there's controversial history, what are they doing that works? What are they doing that's not working so well? So it's actually an interesting term because difficult heritage isn't difficult for everyone. So, for example, the heritage of slavery. We call it difficult heritage, and um, it would be difficult for people who are descendants of slavery, for people who are African-American or African-British or whatever, um, and you would expect white people to also have this be difficult for them. But people are much more than their um, ethnic labels. So you see some people who are African-American visiting Cape Coast Castle in Ghana, which was a fortress that was active in the slave trading industry, and they feel like this is roots tourism. They feel like this is where they came from. This is the beginning of their current origin in the United States. So that's where they've been able to trace their roots back to. And they feel a sense of pride when they go there. On the other hand, you have some people like um, there was an African-American high school student who went on a plantation tour and they were going to take her inside the slave cabin and she just refused because she was saying, that's not me. I'm not that. So there's a different there's a difference based on individuals. Um, so I, I guess there is something kind of wrong with the term difficult history because it's making a lot of assumptions. And often I think what it means is the history is difficult for um, the majority or white people. But that's a term we have, and so we've got to use it. Yeah, I mean, um, it's it's quite interesting what, what things can mean to people. Um, I think one particular interesting case was a couple of years ago, uh, David Cameron was traveling uh, to China. And he, um, this was around the time of the poppy appeal, and he was wearing a poppy. Yes. Uh, now, obviously, poppies are famously used in the uh, produ- uh, production of opium. Uh, so um, the uh, journalists in China did not really appreciate his patriotic gesture, um, which I thought was was yeah. It's, it's a very very interesting you know thing how different symbols can be interpreted and how they relate to two very different traumatic events in history. There's a museum in France that is 
trying to deal with World War, I think, it, I'm not sure which World War, but World War heritage. And this is kind of difficult because their neighbor is Germany. They get German tourists. Um, and they've told themselves for a long time that, you know, this this was a war that we fought and we were completely just in this. But then this museum is coming back and saying, no, is trying to say this was a senseless war. We were all caught. We were all caught up in this and really trying to challenge stereotypes of good and bad. And one interesting thing they did was they made it was they used three languages French, German, and English. And German was the first language they used because Allemand comes before Francais in the alphabet. So I thought that was interesting. I'm not trying to make a commentary on whether um, France really was bad or good in World War II. I'm just saying this is an an example. I think, um, I don't know, Anna, if you would agree with me on this, but as historians, it's kind of hard to imagine a history that isn't difficult in some way because you know the the nature of uh sort of recording human history is that we tend to record you know traumas events uh bad things that happen so uh quite often a museum will be engaging with things that at the very least from today's perspective we see as as having problematic roots oh most of the time things are only worth studying for historians because they're controversial if there is a thing that we all agree on, we all agreed on it. That's that's it. That's the end of the conversation until you find a person who disagrees with it. But I think certainly there are some subjects which are more emotional than others, mm. um, which you know is where the benefit of studying older history lies <laughs> because people mm. often feel more dispassionate about it unless you get to the um, end of the Roman Empire and then everyone has a very passionate opinion about whether it was good or bad and the end of the world and tragedy or um, the birth of the new society that you know resulted in the society that Europe has now um, which is a, a debate again people <laughs> are still very very passionate about but they are passionate about it because of our recent history, because this is a rhetoric that is still very much used because this is history that we still appeal to. Mm. Um, so I guess there is history that is more emotional than other types of history. And I think this is where particularly um, museum work benefits us a lot because this is something that people are interested in learning about mm. um, because museums need to sell themselves as, as any sort of historic work need to sell themselves and this is you know the potential areas where people want to to go and see and learn about yeah i think that you also raise a really valid point there in that one of the most important things about museum studies i would imagine is the audience so althea you mentioned your communications background Obviously, as uh, historians in in the academy, we are sort of uh, very caught up in, we can become very caught up in things that aren't interesting to the general public, whereas anyone working in a museum or in museology is kind of at the cutting edge of what the general public thinks about history. So it sounds absolutely fascinating. It is, and that was one of the reasons why I chose museology over a different form of history, because um, when you see the places that history is disseminated you see books you see tv and then you see museums and so looking at museums as an engine of mass communications 
in the same way books or television was, made me realize that they actually are very powerful means of communication. One of the things that we want to do with this podcast is we are going to ask our guests if they can bring us a kind of an anecdote or something funny that they've dealt with over the course of their research. If you'd like to introduce your anecdote, it would be really interesting to hear what's come up in your research journey so far. So this is more a failure of my research. So I have a master's of arts in museum studies and I'm working on my PhD in museology. That aside, um, just remember that. So I've been going to Whitworth Park, which is right outside my accommodation. It's a really nice place to go. They have a play park that kids can use, but also adults use it. Nobody gets freaked out. So I do that sometimes. And they also have this big white structure that looks like one of those banned jungle gyms that they had back in the day. And I'm looking at this thing and I'm like, isn't it great that it's still here? I wonder why I never see anyone on it. It's probably because they can't get up it. But I've always liked climbing and I decided to have a return to youth and start climbing this thing and building up strength. It had three levels and I thought maybe I can get to the second level and after a while I can get to the third level. So I go up to this white structure and I start doing monkey bars. I start climbing it. I start scooting along the pole on the second level like a sloth. And then this woman... What are you laughing at? <laughs> no, nothing. <laughs> it's, it's not an adorable mental image at all. <laughs> so um, I, I, I'm having fun. But then this woman comes by and she's got a very prestigious black coat on and she's walking with her partner. The wind is blowing in her styled hair. And she looks up at me and just looks absolute disdain in my face. And I'm like, what? I know I'm doing this in a dress, but I have leggings under my dress. I'm like, would you be less shocked if I was wearing leggings and no dress? Because, like, I thought she was judging me for climbing in a dress. And I'm just like, haters gonna hate. So I kept going. And um, when I got off, because I was done, I think to myself, mm, wait, wait, this is, this is near the sculpture garden. And there, there's that little sign by this structure that's by the other sculptures. So I went up to it. And it said that it was not a jungle gym. It was the tree of Hippocrates and that I wasn't (laughs) supposed to climb it. (laughs) And so, yes, even if you have advanced degrees in museums, you can still innocently start climbing on the outdoor sculpture garden of the Whitworth. (laughs) I have have an absolute instinct whenever I go to a gallery or I just want to touch the art. So I feel like you've actually done something, you know, you've uh, added to the the story of the art there you've become you were part of the exhibition yes i was that woman had obviously just never heard of performance art she hadn't (laughs) the funny thing is there's actually a sculpture at the new adelphi center in salford called angle's beard and it's a sculpture of friedrich angle's face and visitors but it's actually a climbing wall so the artist designed it so that visitors could climb on it in order to uh, symbolize the upward struggle for a more just society and so parts of it are really hard to get up but then there's also steps so that it's accessible so yeah I had gone to that sculpture before I climbed on the tree of Hippocrates but I honestly for the nine weeks that it took for me to decide to climb the tree of Hippocrates I honestly thought it was a play park (laughs) (laughs) oh this is honestly the best experience with art i've ever ever heard of it Um, was so fun (laughs) 
Yeah, I, I think you. I think you should just start doing it on the uh, on the regular and just make it uh, part part of the uh, the art experience. Ah, oh, and then it's performance art. It's it's rebellious performance art. It's, yeah, yeah. Then it's legit, right? Yeah. Georgia, don't get Alfie arrested. <laughs> <laughs> But that's what I'm Get here my for. spray paint and start adding to the art. Yes. <laughs> Do it. Oh, that's mm. a that's a really brilliant uh story and I think it I really like hearing how uh someone who hasn't lived in Manchester for a long time like I have how they sort of start to experience the city and to go and see, you know, its public artworks and to to really to really interact with them <laughs> I think is uh is an absolutely amazing way to start to interact with uh, this city, and of course, it's uh, it's revolutionary heritage of which you are now a part. Yes. <laughs> On this topic, how sad is it that the bees are gone? A very sad. It's so sad. It's so sad. <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, for anyone who isn't aware, Manchester was <laughs> over the summer of 2018 po- uh, populated by a lot of fiberglass bees that have been painted to symbolise sort of different aspects of Manchester's heritage and they were very cool they were all sort of different sizes and uh but you also weren't allowed to climb on those mm-hmm. even no. though it would have been very cool to ride one into battle <laughs> it was it was really exciting because also they positioned them in a lot of quite unexpected places like you would walk into whatever like i walked into the hatch and they had a bee there and stuff like that so there were there were encounters with art in places where you did not deliberately go to see it but you go into a place where you're going to get some chips or something and then you are seeing um, a piece that just brightens up your day because they're also they're really colorful and fun was that a nice thing so both of you moved to manchester this summer really (laughs) yeah um while the bees were still here so was that something that actually made the city sort of more welcoming or was it something that you sort of were immediately drawn to Oh yeah, because I've I've helped my neighbor do beekeeping for several years and so knowing Manchester was the city of the bees was really sweet. So I liked seeing them. Um actually it it formed a really nice association for me because um so one of the things that I like most about Manchester University is the fact that it's official colour is purple uh, because I came from Durham and Durham's official colour was purple so it kind <laughs> of made me feel more at home um, but our our library's mascot was called B, uh, well Billy B because the Bryson library be the B and, uh, yeah, and, and so the bees kind of made me feel more at home because I had really warm experiences with the library and I'm, I'm kind of starting to slowly bond with various study locations here. What is your favourite one? My favourite study location? I'm still working it out because I did not quite enjoy the main library as much as I did Bill Bryson, but then there are a lot of really nice spots. And, I mean, Ellen Wilkinson building is nice in terms of you're able to speak to other uh, postgrads, which is lovely. And the kitchen and the conferences. (laughs) Because when there's conferences, they always order too much sandwiches and then they poke their head into the PhD computer cluster and they're like, yo, guys, get some free food. Well, they, they say it more professionally than that, but <laughs> that we, we're happy. <laughs> yeah, I think um, it's really nice for me to be. So I have done all of my uh, higher education at the same university here at Manchester. So I have been 
uh, here as a student and a member of staff since 2010. So I've had lots of time to decide on my favourite study spaces. But it's been very nice for me to kind of see a new intake of people finding where they love to study and uh, the sort of the most beautiful parts of campus, especially in September when the weather's still quite nice. To be in Central Quad is uh, is really, really enjoyable. Uh, and also I do get to give people recommendations on great study spaces. I recommend the Art and Archaeology Library in the Mansfield Cooper Building. And the Bright Building. You like the Bright Building. I do like the Bright Building, but I don't make it too public because that's, oh, that's I don't want everyone to the turn The Bright up. Building has a strange odour. Don't go there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's only when I'm there, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, there apparently is some study spaces, and I have not checked them out, but I've heard about them in the Manchester Museum. Oh. Uh, my friend went there once, and mm-hmm. she really enjoyed it. Uh According to her, I don't know if she was actually supposed to study there, but she sat around <laughs> in Manchester Museum and studied there, so, and she felt inspired. A couple of weeks ago, uh, with another friend of ours, uh, Althea and I went on a bit of a library tour of Manchester, right. John Ryland's library on Deansgate, which was the first building in Manchester to have electricity, uh, also has some study spaces that you can use, and it has a silent reading room, but you have to uh, book in to use that. But it, that is, if you want to work in sort of Victorian Gothic extravagance, that's the one. Isn't that the Harry Potter library? Didn't they film Harry yeah. Potter in there? They did film some of Harry Potter in there. And also, if they ever do, um, like on the Bake Off, they used to do sort of food history segments, and they'd quite often film them in there. Oh, I didn't know that. Old recipe books and things like that. The BBC likes to use it as a... Yeah, well, I had, I'm auditing a module and I had a seminar in there and that was really, really exciting. Um, it's, it's a really lovely space and it currently has a lovely exhibition about uh, women um, who made Manchester, which is lovely and everyone should check out. They also have the oldest known fragment of the New Testament on display, which is completely blowing my mind that they're actually displaying that instead of keeping it a climate-controlled darkened room. <laughs> but no, it's displayed, and there's actually light shining on it, which they must know what they're doing. They must. Just, I'm just surprised and glad that I got to see it. So I, I used to work there, and it is behind like special polarized glass and things so that you can see it and they can shine light on it, but it doesn't damage the fragment. That's incredible. Um, but yes, I, uh, it was very exciting for me to take you to see that. Yeah, that was really great. Thank you. Well, I would like to say, firstly, uh, thank you very much to Althea for agreeing to be our very first guest. It's been wonderful to have you, to hear about your research and about your adventures in uh, in climbing. Thank you. <laughs> um, and uh, I hope that you've enjoyed the experience of being here. Uh, Althea will also be a regular um, host of this show, so you can expect to hear more from her. Yep. Which is incredibly exciting. And and we'll learn about all of the artwork she ever climbs. Yes, I will. Every time I climb an artwork, I will let you guys know. Althea also has a blog that she can promote here. Ah, yes, my blog. So um, my blog is called Bilbo Gets a PhD. So it's a WordPress blog, bilbogetsaphd.wordpress.com. Because when I was looking into a PhD, all I heard was doom and gloom and about how you have to become an alcoholic to get through the workload and you will want to commit suicide in your second year. And I was so really put off by this. Um, But I emailed my dad's friend who had a PhD and he's like, no, 
no, that's not what it's like. He's like, if you um, if you like your research, it's not like that. It shouldn't be like that. So I started this blog as kind of a hopeful defiance that um, you could live a good life and still do a PhD. So it's Lord of the Rings themed, so it's kind of geeky, but it's not it's not heavily geeky. Not more heavily geeky than doing a PhD in the first place. You um, just have to learn to embrace that geekiness. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because um, you're a no hoper by the time you've gotten here. Yeah, no, you're absolutely <laughs> you are absolutely right on that. I think that's um, a perfect note on which to end our very first episode. So thank you for joining us here at NSFP, and. Don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today. What happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. Not Safe for Publication is a new podcast about the lighter side of humanities research at the University of Manchester. If you're a humanities researcher who has something funny to share, please be in touch with us at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at NSFP Podcast. Have an adequately happy existence.